0: You know, it was about three years ago when Michael came to us and he used this analogy of a great feast we would all partake in, when we opened God's word and consumed what it had to say. So imagine this, if you will, that God has sent us someone who delivered us the appetizers in Greg Ivy. I hope Greg's doing well. And then God brought us Michael and Scott to deliver and lay out this great seven-course meal for us to consume. Hadn't it been great? And then Michael Munden delivers the dessert. (laughs) Uh, Here's what I want you to think of me as this morning. I want you to think of me as that after-dinner mint that you might consume. Okay? Okay? So the bar is that way up here. I got to try to help out a little bit on that. So I made my living uh, throughout my career in the sales business. I like to call it the art of persuasion. One of the most basic of skills in the sales business is learning to ask open-ended questions. If you're in the sales business, any at all, you know what I'm talking about. But these are questions that can't simply be answered with a simple yes or no. You actually have to elaborate on something with open-ended questions. My favorite open-ended question is a what-if question. Has a salesman ever asked you a what-if question? Look out. He's taking your temperature. He wants to know what you're thinking. So, okay. So this morning, we're going to ask you a what-if question. What if you were down at the local J.C. store, and coming through the aisle is Jesus, and you stop him, and he's going to allow you to ask any question that you could ask. You might take the historical approach, and you might ask Jesus, Jesus, can you explain, can you go into some detail on how you created this world in just six days? That would be something, wouldn't it? You might lean a little more toward the theological questions, and you might ask Jesus, Jesus, can you help me out with all this suffering in the world? You know, I'd really like to hear his answer on that. That's something we all ask. But then again, you might be a little more futuristic, and you may want to know when is the date that he's coming back so you can get ready for it. Actually, you would probably drive yourself crazy if you knew that answer, but but you may want to ask him that. In today's sermon as has already been laid out for you, we're going to talk about a young and rich man who had the opportunity to do just that. Can you imagine? So our scripture today comes from Matthew chapter nineteen, verse sixteen through twenty three. While you're finding this in your Bible, I want to point out a couple of observations pertaining to the character in these verses. We've described this man as rich and young. And let me say, there's nothing wrong with either. God has not chosen to make me a rich person, but if he could give me a little more, I'd appreciate it. And on the young thing, man, if we could only be 22 years old again and take some of the wisdom back with us, the things we could accomplish. So, now to our scripture. If you'll, as we do in our church, if you'll stand for the reading of God's word. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept the young man said, What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, It is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You may be seated. First of all, it's amazing how often we pretend to be someone or someone other than what or who we are. Some thoughts on this scripture. Remember, young people and old, that when you approach the Son of God, please do so in a humble and honest way. You see right off the bat that the focus of this conversation is about the young man and not Jesus at all when the young man asks, What good thing must I do? I think the question itself was even a smokescreen because the man wanted to impress Jesus. He wanted Jesus was very famous he, of the day, and he wanted the focus to be on himself and not the good person he was. You've heard of somebody re, being referenced as God's gift. Rich here thought he was God's gift, well, to God. We all know people... That try to impress when someone important shows up, don't we? We may be guilty of it, even ourselves. When someone special shows up, we put on a special show. This call, it's called being pretentious, pretending to be someone other than who you are. Being pretentious is definitely not part of being humble. Take a second look at verse 20 there. After Jesus gave him an answer, Rich said something that could not possibly be true, that he had kept all the commandments, all of them. Anyone in here ever kept, have you kept all the Ten Commandments? Anybody here? I haven't. Matter of fact, I I probably broke one on the way to church this morning. Not probably, I did. Think about this world today. We have a lot of pretentious people. People who are pretending to be someone or something other than what God or who God made them to be. Real quickly, just a quick thought, and off the subject, without going into specifics, it dishonors God when we pretend to be something other than who he created us to be. How pretentious is that? Here you are talking to the one and only perfect person who ever lived. And you're pretending to be just like him. Perfect. You've got to know that you can't lie or fool God. He knows everything about you. And Jesus, who is God, he knew this guy. And he knew his sins. Look at what Jesus says in verse 21 when he says, You want to be perfect? Go sell all your possessions and give to the poor. You see, not only does Jesus know our sin, but he knows our heart as well. If we say our heart is changed, but it's not been changed, we're only fooling ourselves. Jesus knew that this man loved the material wealth more than he loved God. You see, Rich was struggling with the same things that many people struggle with today. We think we're perfect. We will not accept the fact that we just don't measure up or need forgiveness from a holy God. After all, As compared to all the other people of the day, he looked at himself and he looked around and he felt like he measured up pretty good. That's sort of what the world thinks today. Men are fooled by what I call the scales theory when they look around and see others and say, God, I guess I'm doing pretty good because I'm not doing what this person's doing or I'm not doing what that person's doing. We've, we've been convinced that we should measure up to others when God requires that we measure up to his standard. The standard by which we are to be judged is not other sinful people, but a perfect and holy God. God has a very high standard, and as I just mentioned, it's called being holy. Holy. In Leviticus 11.45, God reveals what it is when he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. He means perfect. Holy means perfect in every way. That means keeping all of the Ten Commandments all of the time. James 2.10 tells us that for, for whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. When we commit that first sin, we no longer have a shot at holiness on our own. Now, I'm a sports fan, and I'm sure that many of you are as well, And if you're old enough, maybe you'll remember the Olympic sprinter Ben Johnson. He was a talented runner who ran, uh, he was from Jamaica, but he ran for Canada back in the mid-1980s. One of his contemporaries was the powerful runner Carl Lewis, who held the world record at that time. Ben and Carl were dedicated to the 100-meter sprint The man who wins this race in the Olympics will be known as the world's fastest man. What a title. The world's fastest man. In the previous Olympics in 1984, Ben had lost to Carl and won the bronze medal, and losing by just a fraction of a second. He was tired of losing to Carl, he was obsessed, and he wanted to get better at all costs. Nothing is going to stand in Ben's way. So he worked very hard at getting off the starting blocks and felt that if he could improve, he might also get an edge. He also studied the starters who rang out the starter pistol to watch their movements to see if he could get an edge that way as well. Four years went by, And it was now, Ben was now in the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, Korea. All the preparation was over and he was ready to make it pay off. There beside him in the starting blocks was his old rival, Carl Lewis. I remember the race that day and I remember watching this on television. And both of those guys, all of those guys in that race, they looked like thoroughbreds. They were in such shape. They were cut. You just couldn't imagine. I remember watching the race and thinking that, man, I just don't understand how you can get in such shape. Finally, after like what seemed forever, the racers loaded the blocks and the pistol rang out. Now, let me tell you, 100-meter races don't last long. And if you make one small mistake, you're history in the race. One small mistake would cost Ben the race, and any of the others in the race. But he had anticipated the starter pistol perfectly. At this point, as the, as the pistol rang out, the edge was his. Ben Johnson won the race that day, and he broke a world record in 9.79 seconds. Now that's 10 meters for every second. That's really moving, isn't it? You know, I remember when I was in high school that my baseball coach told me he had to put a stick beside me just to see if I was moving. So I could barely imagine a 9.79 seconds. On a side note, and just for a little perspective, Today's world record is held by another Jamaican-born runner, Usain Bolt. The world record today is only fractions of a second better than the race that day. After the race and being interviewed as the world's fastest man, Ben was heard arrogantly saying, My name is Benjamin Sinclair Johnson, and this world record will last 50 years, maybe even 100. Later, he was also overheard saying, a gold medal, now that's something no one can take away from you. It's ironic, the things we say in arrogance when we're sure we have fooled the world or maybe we fooled God. Maybe you remember the race that day. Young people, you may not. Or maybe you've heard What a tragedy that it was when Ben was found out to be an imposter, a pretender, so to speak. That race today is called the dirtiest race in history. Ben and five of of the other eight racers tested positive for antibiotic steroids That's a drug banned by the Olympic Committee even still today because it gives those who use it an unfair advantage. Ben had been so pretentious, he was not the athlete that he claimed to be. Indeed, Ben Johnson's gold medal and his world record were stripped. And he's still considered one of the biggest cheaters in Olympic history. What else did he lose? Think about it. First and foremost... He lost all the influence that he would have to those who looked up to him and to the sport he loved. He lost his reputation as a fierce competitor, not to mention all the endorsements that were coming. Now, don't you think that the Olympic Committee could have just looked past this one thing? After all, most of the other sprinters were also taking the drugs as well. You could even say... They were all doing it. Ben was a lot like the young ruler we spoke about earlier. They looked around and compared themselves to their contemporaries, and to them they looked pretty good. The Olympic Committee had no choice but to do the right thing and the just thing to protect the integrity of the games and, of course, the racers, all the racers that came before and all those that came after we serve a just but loving God. He's perfect in every way, but he simply cannot overlook sin. We've got a great justice system in our country, and I especially like the part that states that we're innocent till proven guilty. It makes us different. Sometimes, however, guilty people go free, and good people get convicted of crimes they didn't commit. I've even heard of an innocent person pleading guilty to protect the life of someone they loved. Can you imagine someone going to prison or maybe getting the death penalty for someone else? Think about it. Is there anyone in your life that you love that much that you would take the penalty for their crime? John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. I think you'll agree with me that we have the best justice system in the world, but it's far from perfect. We, we need to constantly be reviewing and making improvements to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. I'm afraid we have a, view, a skewed view of what justice really is. I think that's why we see a lot of unrest in our country. People are calling for justice justice and fairness, and I don't even think they understand what it is. If we search the scripture, God has given us a clear vision of what true justice is. Now, I hope you're ready for this, because this alone could change how you feel about God. Exodus 21:22 gives us that view of justice. I'll read it for you. If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for for bruise Sounds pretty prehistoric, doesn't it? But think about it, it's true. That would be just and fair to all parties. Many people, even today, when they ask when asked what justice is, they say it's when the punishment fits the crime. I've heard that all my life. But in reality, we can't stomach true justice. I'm here to tell you today, God is just, and he can. Not only is God perfect in every way from Scripture, we know that he detests sin. Think about something that you detest, and just keep it in your mind. I'll give you a little story about what I detest. In high school, I loved to go fishing down on the Kentucky River. And uh, every spring, when it would flood, we'd have to wait several weeks till the water would go down. And then we, we knew that there would be fish trapped in these little eddies, and we knew that we could go get them. So we'd walk down to the river and uh, put our pole in and catch the fish. One day we did this, me and my buddies. We walked down the river. We got ready to fish. But there was a stench like you've never smelled before. I mean, it was so bad, we looked around, where was this smell coming from? It was hideous. It was detestable. The smell alone was detestable. So we finally said, we can't stay here. It stinks so bad, who cares about catching fish? So as we headed back up the bank, we all looked up in the tree, and during the floods, there was a cow that had got stuck in the tree. And rigor mortis had set in. You see what I'm saying about detestable? Now, God doesn't want to live around sin no more than you would live around that thing that you're thinking is detestable. It's filthy. Think like justice, I think we really don't have a clear view of how often we sin. And make ourselves detestable to God. Our small minds rationalize our sin and call it anything but what it is. But it's sin. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the winds, our sin sweeps us away. Wow. Even the things that we consider are good as compared to how good God is, they're like a filthy rag. The reason is when we do good, even though we might say give God the glory, really we're still just patting ourselves on the back, aren't we? We can't help ourselves. Even though God gave us everything that we have, every talent, every ability he's provided for us. Even if you don't have any visible sin, we sin by being proud of it. I'm in trouble, folks, because I'm a proud, proud guy. Now, like the young ruler and Ben Johnson, we're all really very pretentious with God. We think we can hide our sin and being so proud of it. Now, you may go to church every time the door is open. You might sing in the choir. You might be the best evangelist this side of Billy Graham. As compared to God who sets the standard of holiness, you're still dirt, dirty, you're filthy, and you're unclean. Let me put it to you this way. In God's eyes, you're just as dirty as a murderer, adulterer, a drug dealer. And we're all doomed because of his justness. And there's a penalty that has to be paid. According to scripture, that penalty is death and separation from God. Now I can see your faces. That's pretty heavy stuff I'm throwing out there for you this morning. You might even be feeling hopeless right now. If we left it right there, if we left it right there, God would seem uncaring and harsh, wouldn't He? Ever ask yourself this question? Could not God just say that everything is all right? I forgive everyone? After all, He is God, He can do anything He wants. Remember, we said God is just. He's the only thing that is totally just. God's character is that he's just in every way. That's part of his holiness. We're not going to leave it there because there's something else you need to know. I'm thankful that this is not the end of the story. God is just, and because of his justness, he can't just let these infractions go. As we said, there's a penalty and price that has to be paid. We're guilty, and according to Scripture, we deserve death. A holy and clean God will not subject himself to living with filth. The good news is that God's love for us trumps his hate and disdain for our sin. Isn't that great? Paul Tripp says we will never be so holy as to meet God's standard, and we are never too wicked as to be beyond his rescue. If we had given our lives back to him, he will pay the penalty for us. The Bible says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become true righteousness of God. That's exactly what Jesus was. He was here on earth to pay the penalty of death that we deserved that first time we sinned. We would simply be living on earth without the hope of living if it were not for Jesus who died on the cross that day. This was God's plan from the beginning. Because of his love for you. Romans 5 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He knows who we are. You can't hide or fool God, yet he loved us anyways. That's good news, folks. God is just. He is the essence of love. John 4, 16 tells us that God is love. In conclusion, you might have been living your life pretending that you're someone you're not. Okay, you like to pretend? Let's pretend a little bit right now. What if your life is over and you're standing before God? Then God asks you, what's your plea? By then, you would have to know that it's got to be guilty. Now, if you had just put your trust in Jesus while you were here on earth, Jesus would step forward and say, I know him, Father. I've already paid the price for his sin. Praise God. At this point in God's eyes, justice was served and you are the beneficiary of someone who loved you enough to die for you your sins would have already been washed away by the one and only perfect sacrifice that had the power to forgive sin hallelujah you'll spend eternity with jesus john 14:2 says in my house are many rooms If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. You don't want to miss that. And God doesn't want you to miss that. Another good thing is that with God, it's never too late. As long as you are alive on this earth, there's still hope for you. Maybe you're saying, but Ben, what if you're wrong and all this Christianity stuff is just a fairy tale? Are you willing to take that chance? What if I'm right as I believe I am? What then? Another good thing about God is that He never changes, He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Unlike science that changes every time there's a new discovery, I can guarantee you they will never discover something about God that changes who God is. He's the only constant we have. You might be feeling him right now. He might be dealing with you in his own way. You know, that alone should let you know how real he is. If God's dealing with you right now, here's that question. What if you surrendered your life to him? I'm going to ask the musicians to come up and begin to play. I will tell you, don't leave today without the assurance that you've given your life to Jesus. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for allowing me to speak your word this morning in front of all these friends. Lord, we ask that if there's anybody that doesn't know you today, that they would consider what you have to offer. Forget the world and go what's unworldly. In Jesus' name, amen.